Dave's Psych Lectures. This podcast part is released under Creative Commons Copyright Canada. Feel free to distribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. Okay. So today, I want to talk about actually you, that's the kind of memory that I find most interesting, which is memory that isn't in people. Some of you guys through learning have heard a lot of this stuff before. Um, so I'm going to talk about cognition more comparative psychology. See you next time. So the idea of comparing different species on their learning and memory abilities is as old as psychology, almost as old as psychology. Um, and people have wondered which animal is smartest, has the best memory, things like that, for a very long time. That's, that's again, something, if you know about Thorndike and puzzle boxes and all that stuff that he did back in God, the early 1900s, late 1800s, he was doing that to figure out which animal was smartest and had the best memory. It turned out that he found an interesting phenomenon and just went from there, but that's why he started So there's been a lot of work done looking at serial position effects and short and long-term memory and things like this in rats and pigeons. In fact, almost primarily, almost completely in rats and pigeons. Why rats and pigeons? Because rats you can order from there's a couple places in the world that, that sell lab rats, and literally you order ten and you get one free. <laughs> I'm not making that up. Yeah, so you get a spare, almost always. You can order a certain, if you order basic standard lab rats, they're really cheap. If you start ordering, like, I want this genome or something, it's more expensive, but it's pretty cheap. Pigeons, the other reason pigeons are used is because they're easy to keep, and uh, they live for 20 years. So, you know, a lot of stuff in rats and pigeons. So there's an implicit question here. Implicit question here when you're testing animals on things like serial position effects. And that question is can rats do what humans do? Can pigeons do what humans do? That's the question. It's not specifically laid out there, it's not explicit, but it's implicitly there. If we're going to test pigeons and rats on things that, and see if they show the same phenomena people do, the question we're asking is are they like us? And this almost seems like an interesting question. You can see I'm sitting up with what I like to call, like what people like to call a straw man. Um, it's almost a sensible question. Right? What's the basis for a question like that? Well. It's kind of like saying that humans must be at the top of some evolutionary ladder. We'll not talk. Love that angels had God, but <laughs> there must be some ladder, right? That is lower and higher, not as good and better. That everything is striving to be human somehow. Which, of course, and that this was an idea that uh, Camel Hodos in the classic paper, 1969, uh, mentioned in a paper called Where is the Comparison of Comparative Psychology? It's something that if you end up working at all with animals, you will read this paper. You'll be forced to read it. It's actually a very good paper. And people had this notion that implicitly, but sometimes almost explicitly, that there was a ladder. Of course, the idea is wrong. It's not how it works. You guys know it's the tree of life, right? It's not different levels of gradation of awesomeness with us at the top. Yeah, I wonder why we get to talk. Is there any discovery that we You're such a speciesist. So, I don't know what that voice was I was doing there, but it just seemed appropriate. It was my shrill complainer character that I have. Um, so, that's not how it works, right? Things aren't more evolved than other things. Not how, not how it is. <laughs> Something evolves to fill its niche and it solves evolutionary problems and everything works. That's just because humans 
are smart and our closest living ancestor, or sorry, relative, which is probably the chimp. Might be giving anything, some controversy in the literature now. It's probably the chimp. And chimps throw poop at each other and humans build civilization. Does that mean that we're more evolved than them? No. They're still here. We're still here. At least fine. I think it's better to be a person. Then again, as a chimp, you can get away with throwing poop at each other and no one says anything, right? So, that's a joke. No, I don't want to do that. Um, so there's no pop, there's no gold evolution, right? The, that, that kind of idea is wrong. So the question you should be asking is, what has driven some species to be able to solve a certain type of problem? If you remember the Sherry and Schachter paper that's on the CMS that I talked about, when would multiple memory systems evolve? It's that kind of thing, right? It's like, when you have to solve a different kind of problem, that's when a different memory system will evolve. Well, what we're talking about here, what has driven some species to be better than some other species at some problem? Or what has driven evolution to, to basically invent, shorthand there, by the way, evolution doesn't invent things, um, some new memory system to solve some kind of problem? See, so when you think about it, the question is, can, when rats, can rats do what humans do? It's kind of like asking, why can't people fly by flapping their arms? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> give it a try for you, but I hope it's a good idea. Uh, but think about that, right? Well, rat, why can't rats, the rats learn like humans? The people fly like birds. What kind of question is that? Well, it, of course, there is something kind of special about humans. We can, instead of having to... We just invent big giant flying metal birds and sit inside them. So there's something pretty special about people. But it's kind of a crazy question, implicitly or explicitly. It's not usually said explicitly anymore because most people have figured out that it's a stupid question. So it's what selective pressures, if you want to put it in terms of the biology. What selective pressures have led to the evolution of certain cognitive mechanisms? Right? So asking what species is smartest is a silly question. It's, 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 a, it's almost a meaningless question. It's kind of like having a race between a human and a cheetah. It's, it's, it doesn't tell you much except that cheetahs can run fast. But who cares? It's a silly, it's, you know, again, what the human could do is get in a car and win, or perhaps pull out a gun and shoot the cheetah. So it, the human will eventually win if you let me use this technology every time. And I'm not, again, suggesting shooting perhaps endangered animals. Please. I have been killing a lot of whales in Assassin's Creed Black Flag. I'm just saying. Really, cheetah, I'm mad at that. Put all your energy there. That's good. Um, so it's a silly question. It's not a question you should worry about, which species is smarter. Because there are things that some species can do, even memory things that you can't do. Right? Clark's Nutcracker, 40 kilometer radius. In the fall, stores about 30,000 seeds. Six months later, goes back and finds about 25,000 of those seeds. You can't do that. You can't, unless you wrote it down. But you know what? If you wrote it down, it would take you so much time to get it done. <laughs> they just do it by memory. It's pretty amazing. I've never seen a Clark's Nutcracker drive a car, build a civilization, when there's stuff they can do that you can't do. But their lives depend on this. Their lives literally depend on stored food in the winter because they don't migrate. So it makes a lot of sense that evolution would have selected for some sort of specialized learning mechanism, memory mechanism. Right? It just makes sense. Their ancestors that were successful, right, had passed those genes on. Okay? So that's sort of introductory remarks. Questions make some sense? Some of you've seen this stuff before. So how do you compare two species? Let's say you want to compare two species. It's an interesting question still. How do we compare two species on their ability with memory? So we got some task. 
and we're going to compare, I don't know, rats and pigeons, which is a stupid comparison. So let's say we find a difference. Let's see, is there anybody here who, I don't know, let's see, what's something I dislike that people like? Okay, the reinforcer for getting doing something properly is uh, going to be a whole bunch of like cheese. I don't know much on cheese. I don't pizza. Maybe a burger. But who here loves the cheese? Who's pro cheese? Well, it's a bunch of you. Okay. So let's say we're going to have a running race, and all of you cheese people are running against me. I was the fastest defensive lineman on my high school football team. I was 16, and I was up the, being the, you know, the football team, the fastest defensive lineman was being the fastest player. But, put some wheels back in the day. <laughs> but we're racing for cheese. You guys all beat me. I don't care. Exactly. I don't care because I didn't get cheese. I don't want cheese. Who wants cheese? What kind of loser wants that as a prize for running, winning the race? The gold medal and cheese goes to <laughs> Usain Bolt. Keep the medal, just give me the give cheese. Give me the cheese, yeah. <laughs> Could I exchange this cold medal for more cheese, perhaps? Now, see, the thing is, <laughs> you really like that one, Maddie. Um, so, so the thing is, what about motivation, right? So I'm not motivated to win for cheese. Now, on the other hand, if it was a race and we're winning for roasted bone marrow, I'd be all in. So, you don't be. So it's interesting because this is an idea that people had. That they said, like, look, when you find two species are different in some memory task, maybe it's because it's a motivational difference. Maybe the reinforcer you're using is, is just not interesting to the other animal. Right? So people would find differences. And people would say, well, it could be a motivational difference. Maybe this species doesn't like peanuts as much as this species. So these guys work harder for peanuts. Hmm. Okay, that was wasn't meant to be that, but yeah. Um, and this guy Bitterman had this notion that basically what we have to do is test the same species, or same couple of species, in, in, in the same task using all kinds of different reinforcers. This was Bitterman. Now Bitterman also had some other odd ideas. Um, he pretty clearly believed that it was an evolutionary ladder which was criticized in that paper by Otis and Campbell, and he said, no, I didn't, and you can go back and look at the paper, and you can literally see an evolutionary ladder. And it's almost like he said, well, I didn't really write that. I, I didn't mean it, I just wrote it. It's really kind of weird. Um, in the early 80s, this guy Ewan McPhail comes along, uh, which is a great Scottish name, Ewan McPhail. And McPhail says that in science we started by assuming the null hypothesis. You all know that's true. There's no effect, right? You start with that assumption and you try to see if it's not true. So in our case here, there are no difference, there's no difference between two species in memory. Okay? Does it make sense? No difference. Now when you find a difference, the problem is when you find a difference, maybe it's motivation. Maybe it's motivation, right? Remember, keep that motivational thing in mind. It could be that uh, it's because of Dave and the Cheese. Worst name for a band I've ever had. So, and in fact, McPhail goes on in, in, a, in a couple of papers in the early 80s, early mid 80s, to say that, frankly, there are the only differences we've ever found between different species in memory and intelligence, learning, are that humans are better than everything. And it's all just language. The only thing he said is that it's reliable is that there's a difference that other animals don't do language and we do. Now, I will agree that other animals don't do language and we do. He's correct on that. Um, there is a real flaw, however, with what he sets up here is his theoretical approach. Okay. 
And this was outlined by a guy named Al Camel. Um, that's Al holding a Clark's Nutcracker, right there. To get an idea of the size of Clark's Nutcracker, size like a small pigeon or a small crow. It's, it's in the Corbett family. Um, Al's at the University of Nebraska, uh, and uh, he sees a really important history of, of, of looking at animal memory. He's won uh, an award from the Comparative Cognition Society, a Lifetime Achievement Award, basically. Um, and he's kind of funny. And Al points out, and this is back in 87, he pointed this out, that there's a flaw in McPhail's reasoning. He says, you've set up an hypothesis you can't reject. Because every time you find a difference, you say, no, oh, motivation. And when you don't find a difference, you go, oh, no difference. So in other words, you can never find a difference. It becomes impossible to find a difference between species when you are constantly saying that all, every time you find a difference, you go, no, oh, motivation. Is that cheese thing? I first, I first met him at a conference when I was, I was, uh, I was 23 years old. I was a ma- first year master's student. And I was at this conference, and um, it was an amazing conference. It was this, uh, and this name's not going to sound exciting, but it was to me a conference on complex and extended stimuli. <laughs> The book's way better. <laughs> I'm not kidding. The book's actually got a better title. Uh, co- it's a book called Cognitive Aspects of Stimulus Control. You're thinking, yeah, it's not that much better a title, eh? Um, but it's, it's, it's really good. A lot of really good papers in it. Um, and it was basically, people were invited to give these talks. They were about an hour long. And they were all talk people. And then some of the graduate students were there and some of the people were there. And um, a couple moments, I'll never forget her. forget David Sherry doing his impression of Rain Man which was just hilarious, and I was the only person in the whole room that got the joke. Uh, but I remember Al talking to me at breakfast, and my supervisor, Sarah Shuttleworth, saying, you know, this is my graduate student, David, he's just read that paper, and um, he, when, when I, he first got to my lab, it's, it's really sort of inspiring. And I was all awestruck, like I was being a beetle or something. Um, and it was, we talked over breakfast, then we go to this first talk, and the whole thing. And this guy, Mark Rilly, who's somewhere in Minnesota, gets up to do a talk and he says, I really, uh, I really like the approach taken by you and McPhail. And Al yells out across the room to me, hey, Broadback, there's one in every crowd! <laughs> and everybody looks at me because no one knows who I am. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a master student. And they're all staring at me like, why is Al Campbell yelling at you in the middle of this guy's talk? <laughs> and that's when I realized, oh, academics are just a bunch of jerks like the rest of us. You know? So, uh, And these guys all knew each other, of course. So it was sort of good-natured ribbing. I have never seen more, a set of people pay less attention to each other than a really, really high-end academics talking to other really high-end academics in that, that group. It was weird. It was weird. Typically, people are very respectful. They sit there quietly and listen. This conference, it was like, there was some sort of, I think they would all go out drinking just before the talks or something. And the graduate students were invited. It was really bizarre. It was a great conference. So, how do we fix this? Well, what Camel said is we're going to test many species in many different paradigms. Not just one, two species in one single thing. Because even if it's not motivation, any difference in one single paradigm might, there might be much be biased against one certain species, right? So why not test them in many different paradigms and test many different species, not just two? And if you find similar patterns of differences in many different tests, it's unlikely to be motivation or some other kind of bias. Because error cancels, right? It's the fact that sometimes it's going to help whatever that bias is, it's going to help one species, then it's going to help perhaps another the next time. And you're going to look at life history and biology and neuroscience, psychology, all at once to make, these, to make predictions. So you say, what sort of differences should have evolved? Right? You're going to make predictions. You're not going to make, do demonstrations. You're not going to say, hey, look what rats can do. And believe me, the number of papers in animal cognition research, animal memory research, not so much now, but it used to be, I swear to God, look at this, pigeons can do this too. And perfectly 
good, perfectly well done experiments, but the rationale behind them was like, I can train an animal to do this. It's almost like that. When you take a step back. You know, there, there's also the possibility of making predictions in that example that you gave us with cheese. Yes, of course there is. Because in Sardinia, the delicacy is cheese full of maggots. And yes. It may not be motivated to... No, I mean, exactly. But there's also an English cheese like that. English cheese yeah. like that. <clears throat> so, for example, you might have a whole bunch of animals... You might have food storing in the birds. This is an example that is close to my heart. So you might have birds that store food, like Clark's hot crackers, blackhead chickpeas, and birds that don't store food. Okay? Now, you would expect that on any spatial task... Anything where they're using spatial memory, memory where stuff is, that the, the stores would be better than non-stores. But on something where they're remembering color, you don't make any prediction at all. It could be better sometimes, it could be better other times, who knows? So that's what you, that kind of prediction you make, because you look at, you can say, okay, food storing birds, uh, let's say they have uh, that, that food storing lifestyle, they have to remember what that food is, and they're going to do it using this, some sort of spatial memory. So that's the kind of prediction you And that's what I want to talk about. That's a black cat chickadee. You will hear them. In fact, you now hear chickadee song this time of year, not just the call. You don't just hear the chickadee dee but you hear the dee Chickadee song, right? Very cool. But the only bird song you hear right now. There's a Clark's Nutcracker. Right? There's one of the first people that did some of this work. That's uh, Sir John Krebs. Yes, Sir John Krebs, Lord. He's a Lord. He's in the British House of Lords now. I know a guy who's a knight and a Lord. Which is kind of cool. I haven't talked to him personally. Jeez, 20 years. I talked to him by email at one point when Sarah Shuttleworth, my PhD supervisor, won an award for sort of like a machine award again sort of thing. Uh, and he helped us get it, and I didn't know how to email him. I had no idea how to address him because he's a baron, and a lord, and a, and a sir. So I just started, and he's also the, the, the principal of, of a college at Oxford, of Jesus College. So his email address is principal at Jesus. Which <laughs> is like, dot, dot, ox, dot, act, that you can. And I don't know what's, I, I, I really don't like nobility, <laughs> it's stupid, I think monarchy's dumb, but it's like, you know, I don't want to be offensive to the guy. So I how do you start email? So I, I Google, how do you email a lord? Right? Do I call him your lordship? Because it would be weird, because I've known it. I've been out drinking with John when I was a grad student and he was a, well, I still was a prophet at Oxford. I know this guy. Do I say, dear sir? Because he's a sir. So I just went with, hey John. <laughs> and that was fine, he was all happy that she won the award. There's Dave Sherry, uh, who's at Western, and some of his old graduate students. Um, and there's a contemporary of mine, Sir Sherwood's lab, Rob Hampton, holding up a warthog skull in Africa on his honeymoon. Because when Rob got married, he went to Africa to find warthog skulls. <laughs> I don't know. Is he still married? No, no, no. He's, <laughs> he's the, uh, Rob runs the uh, Yerkes Private Institute uh, uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, and is a uh, professor of psychology at Emory University. So, this we Campbell called this approach to looking at differences in memory the synthetic approach because you, you, you synthesize biology and psychology into one thing. The first thing was, in fact, a biological thing, and it wasn't even done with animals, it was done with paper and pencil. This is Anderson and Krebs, 1978. And what they did is they tried to figure out when would food storing evolve. So they made up a mathematical model trying to figure out when food storing would evolve. And food storing should only evolve when you recover, you need a bird, recovery, or it could be slow. Um, recover your own caches, your own food. Why is that? Well, there are sort of two competing hypotheses that there were. One was you're recovering your own food. The other one was 
we all score and we all recover communion. Right? One of them is, okay, so one of them is you recover your own food, the other one is nature is a socialist paradise. Nature is not a socialist paradise, it's red tooth and claw. And if I, let's say you guys are all being nice and storing seeds out there for me. And I'm doing nothing. I'm just going to sit back and wait for you to store seeds. And by the way, when you're out doing that, I don't know, I'll probably kill some of your children. Because, you know, why not? It's good for my, my, my genes. Guess whose genes get passed on? Lazy bum chicken. Not pleasant, group-oriented chickadee. <laughs> it's the world does, the universe just simply doesn't work that way. Nature's not nice. Things die in nature. Not nature's good. Look, it's minus 30 out, and there, there's literally ice in the air. When the weather says ice crystals, and you look at it, go, yeah, look, there's just floating bits of ice in the air. It's so cold that the air is freezing. Solid. Like, there's bits of air floating around that's cool. I, I, I have my fill. That's all I'm saying. I don't think about the weather. It's like, oh, that's okay. I'm in Canada. This is good. It's better than getting sunburned, which is what I get from, you know, March till August, November, something like that. But no. Right now, I've had enough. The air is on. Selling. Oh, sorry. Um, see, but not being in nature's good. We're here. So the only way it can evolve, food storing, I don't know where that came from, that little rant, I'm very sorry, um, <laughs> is if you recover your own caches, how are you going to do it? Well, you could do it by smelling them, I guess. Probably never. Our birds recover their own caches. Well, I mentioned Dave Sherry. Sherry Avery and Stevens 1981. Really neat experiment. Out in the field. Okay, so they got, they got little pine nuts. So pine seeds. And... They've made them radioactive, as you do. And not so radioactive is going to hurt the birds, by the way. But radioactive enough that you can find them with a counter. So you set up these radioactive seeds out in Whiteham Wood in Oxford, and the birds come, they pick up the seeds, and they store them. And then you know what you can do? You can go find them. You've got a guiding counter, you go, oh, look, there's one. And a third of them, you can move over 10 centimeters. Another third of them you can move 30 centimeters. And another third of them you leave where they are. And you write down where they all are. And you come back. You come back a week later and see which ones are gone. The ones that are gone presumably are the ones that the animals recovered. The ones that weren't moved are gone. The ones that have been moved are still there. Their, their memory is so accurate that when they fly back and they're within 10 centimeters of where the seed is, they're like, I can't, it's not anywhere. And they're obviously not using smell or something because it's just it's this far away. Pretty clear that they're recovering their own seeds. And it's probably using memory. Because if it was some other thing, you would think that they would get and very precise spatial memory, not memory for like stuff that's nearby for local cues as much, because if that was the case, one that's 10 centimeters away, they should find. So then into the lab, everybody went, and this is Sarah Shuttleworth and John Krebs, just off their pictures there, in 82, and Sarah did this really neat experiment where marsh kits were allowed back into, they went into the lab, uh, in an area, they stored seeds in trees, and when I buy, by trees I mean four by fours with holes drilled in them, and there's a couple of different conditions, one of the things that Sarah and John did is they put in other, like, I think the birds were allowed to store six seeds or something like that, I think they actually have but They'd also place six random seeds, and the birds were way better at finding the ones they put out, put in. Uh, Sarah also removed half of the seeds in another experiment in that paper, and it turns out still they were returning to the place where the seeds were, showing that they weren't using smell, they were using memory. Okay. So they're using memory to recover their seeds. 
Now, all kinds of general memory tests were run, and there was a clear difference between stores and non-stores in the Corvid family. That's the crows and the nutcrackers and the jays. So yeah, so like in the crows and the nutcrackers and the jays, it's like pretty obvious that the, the, the stores were better than the non-stores. But not so much in um, in the parrots, in the chickadees and titlets. I've already discussed the thing, I've mentioned this, the difference in hippocampal volume. It turns out that storing birds with bigger hippocampus than non-storing birds, exactly what you would predict if they were using spatial memory to recover those seeds. And then that difference shows up in Paraday too, in, 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 in chickadees and titmice. So what about that? And the data there were pretty much equivocal. The data there were pretty much equivocal. It turned out that half, it seemed like half the time you'd find a store better than a non-store, and the other half the time it wasn't that way. So people were at a loss because the people that were studying the Corvids were finding these beautiful differences, exactly what you would expect. The, 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 the Clark's Nutcrackers remember better than, say, Blue Jays. They remember better than Scrub Jays, than Pinion Jays. Like, and you go, okay, why would you rank it like that? Well, how much do they rely on stored food? You rank it exactly the same way. So it actually was, it was going perfectly for them. The people who were studying... Uh, chickadees and titmice weren't finding these differences. Or they were sometimes. It's very unreliable. So then, in late 80s, um, people started looking at not, maybe it wasn't how much they were remembering, but how they were remembering. So it wasn't how much they were remembering, but how they were remembering something. So it's a qualitative versus a quantitative difference. Qualitative meaning the way it's done rather than the amount that's remembered. This was work, in fact, that um, one of Sarah's graduate students stuck this idea up. <laughs> there I am on the right. <clears throat> Me and Sarah. I was 27? Yeah, I just finished. Just finished up. In Montreal, just won the Stanley Cup. So, yeah, that was the party, that was my going away party, actually. In her backyard. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so, I was comparing stores and non-stores on what they remembered in different tasks. I don't know what a task is. Task, task, G-A-K. So comparing stores and non-stores in different tasks. And so this was my PhD thesis. And that's, these two papers are my PhD thesis. jumping around on the roof throughout the whole lecture. And they're nailing stuff down, and you can see the nails come through. Yeah. I was kind of tense. Nothing like, you know, this, this little bit of noise. Nothing like actually watching spikes come through the roof. No one noticed. Somebody pointed it out in the whole class. We were all mesmerized looking at it. Trying to guess when the next one would come, running like little fools. Anyway. So, so here's some um, stuff I did in graduate school a long time ago. Um, okay, so there's these feeders. 
And these chickadees, they're food storing birds, would go into the room, into an apiary, and they'd find a, um, a seed, actually a peanut, cut in half in a feeder. And the feeders were um, a piece of two by four, about that long, with a dowel sticking out of them, and a hole drilled in the, feeder, in, in, the, in, the, in the two by four. So you could put piece of peanut in it. And then each of these, the reason these are dark circles like that is because each of them actually had Velcro put around there. So the bird would fly into the room, would eat some of the, the food for 30 seconds, and then I'd turn the lights out. And when you turn the lights out of a bird, and turn the light on back in his cage, he flies back in his cage. You hope. So I never had to touch the animal. And the chickadees, they're hard to handle. They're, the birds weigh 11 grams. They're small little animals. So there's this room about half the size of here, and on, on the wall there were cages with little trap doors. And you pull the trap door up, open the trap door in the cage, and he flies in. Flies in, he finds this, this apparently it's here this time, Peanut pecks out at 104 different feeders that were painted one afternoon by uh, my girlfriend, my wife, and I. All kinds of fun things written on them. <clears throat> different ones every day. Then they fly back in, there'd be Velcro covering each one. The bird flies back in, removes the Velcro, and eats the peanut. Okay? Pretty good. And they, they get good at this right quick. Now, some days, once they were good at it, I'd swap a couple around and I'd move the feeders over. And I'd get the peanut. So once they're good at this, what I'm able to do now is dissociate color and spatial location. And what the chickadees did is they responded first to the spatial location, which is this one here, because this is closest in 3D space to this one, and secondly to here, the array position, the position it is in respect to the others, and third to the color. The last one, I would wait five minutes to see if they'd visit the last feeder. They usually wouldn't. They'd sit on a perch in the middle of the aviary staring at me. Like this. And I'm thinking what they're thinking is, I know, there's no peanut in here, Dave. I'm not humoring you anymore. <laughs> I am not going to that. Yeah. That's what's going on. Over excited. I kind of hope something like it rushes through the wall, and it's like Steve McQueen trying to escape from Stalag Three. Anybody seen the Great Escape? No. Okay, moving on. Um, so you can see the chickadees did. By the way, juncos, which are non-storing birds that live in the same part of Ontario, um, they don't. They respond to the, each of the three things, space, array, and color. But, and the, the fourth one lasts, so they're remembering everything, but they don't have this preference for, for spatial information. This is exactly what you would expect. So, on a smaller scale, using a computer uh, and a touchscreen monitor, it actually isn't really this, what we would today call a touchscreen because it wouldn't really work. The, the kind of touchscreen it is is too, um, like it wouldn't work with an iPad or something like that. Because I doubt the beak would work, but they had was infrared photo beams, whatever. They peck at, the, at, a, at a location on the screen. So I did exactly the same thing, except I was able to collect a lot more data in a much smaller scale. The birds were rewarded for going to one place and not to another. Then I, with different colors, then I switched the colors around, that's all. Switch the patches of, of color around. The chickadees relied on space, the juncos didn't. And in fact, it's hard. It's hard to get chickadees to, to rely on color and ignore space. It can be done, but it's hard. It took me 600, roughly 600 trials to make that happen. So months and months and months of work. 
Whereas the Junkos, you can train them to use space, you can train them to use color, no problem. So why would we expect this difference? Um, makes a lot of sense when you think about it. The birds remember where, oops, I've lost my connection here. They remember where something is, not what color it is. Because colors change in the environment. But that line of trees out there is still going to be there no matter if it snows or if the leaves come off those trees or whatever. It's still there. The strange result actually isn't the... Um, is actually the, the, the juncos because most animals will rely on spatial information. The interesting thing is this has been replicated quite a few times, this effect. Um, so it's not that... It's, there's something special about this thing with the uh, feeders and moving them around and such. I think it's probably because it's so much like food story. Because uh, other stuff that I've done over the years has found that, in fact, even pigeons will behave like this in a Skinner box. They'll behave like chickadees. So it's very strange. The whole thing's kind of weird. All right. Questions? So you could even do it, whoops, it's not going to do it automatically, don't do that. Um, you could even, for example, <laughs> look at other animals out in the wild and see if this happens with them. And this is what happened uh, when one of my students and I looked at, and there she is, Jessica Humber. She, won an, she had a summer insert, and this was back in Newfoundland, so she actually ended up in the local paper because Cornerbrook's a small town. Um, hard to see in this picture here. What she was looking at were pine siskins. You can see them here. This is a picture taken in June in Cornerbrook. Note the fact that there aren't any leaves in the trees yet. Just saying. Trees dead? No, that tree's <laughs> alive. That's the thing. That's, that's Around June 2nd or 3rd, suddenly all the trees didn't have leaves on them. But before that, it was just... The way it is there. So, there they are there, Pine Siskins. Um, they're little birds that breed in North America. Um, sometimes they'll make sort of migratory invasions of uh, other parts of the world, go further south. Usually that's when food supplies are short. It's interesting because Jessica got this insert and there were two of us there that had inserts, insert research grants. Um, she was a biology student and then there were two of us. There was a psychologist and an astrophysicist. That's it. So she had a choice of working with me or a guy in physics. So she came to work with me and she said, but I don't know anything about animal behavior. And I said, here are 15 articles. Read them and come back in a week with an idea. And she did, which was great. So they're pretty good for field study, partially because they were in her backyard, and I mean literally her backyard. The lab we used was her backyard. We didn't have to trap birds. We were doing what people normally do, which is feeding birds, so we didn't even have to really worry about getting an animal use protocol. Yeah, maybe we did. I can't remember it. Everything worked out fine. So... We were testing. Don't do that. Why is it? Go ahead, damn it. Um, we were testing if they could uh, be trained to find different feeders in a three to two to one ratio. It's hard to see the green and red and yellow feeders. Okay. And there's three cups, literally, that's what it is. Three cups of, of seed in one feeder, two cups in another, and one cup in the final. See, this should be pretty good at detecting food density because. When the food density is low, they actually leave it in these migratory invasions. This was our guess. And maybe they should rely on spatial information because that's going to be more reliable about food locations, just like sort of convergent evolution about food stores, right? And in fact, as you can see here, they could. 
This is visits to green, red, and yellow proportions. Lots of fun observation sessions. The way this worked was Jessica would sit in her uh, kitchen, looking out on her back yard, and she had a, um, I guess it was actually, did we, yeah, I think we made an MP3 of me saying switch every 30 seconds. And we looped it. And every 30 seconds, she'd look at a different feeder and then write down how many birds were there. It's called time sampling. These weren't our own birds. They were just wild birds living in her backyard. That's going to go forward again. Uh, no, it didn't. Good. So, as you can see there, no, it did. You mother in a 3 to 2 to 1 ratio. Now, at the beginning, they could actually see what was in the feeder, or they could have emptied the rightmost feeder first, which is the one with the least. So what we did is we covered the, the feeders up. I'm just going to do that and that. That's, maybe that helps. I don't know. We covered them up with... Uh, Cardboard, basically. Piece of shit. I don't know why that's happening. Um, so, and then of course we did the thing where we switched the feeders around to see if they were paying attention to the color or the spatial location. Guessing the paying attention to the spatial location because food density is so important to them, uh, and that's going to be the best way to pinpoint where food is. And that, I'm just doing this now. I don't care now. Just look. See, and then eat. Um, okay. Don't. Don't. So as you can see here, so this is sort of a baseline. Yeah, that's green, red, yellow. But we sort of switched them around, and they're still going left, middle, right. Except when the green one is on the, on the right. Then they act like it's a brand new world, sort of. It's like, oh, I don't know what's going on here. The green one's on the right. What kind of world do I live in now? I'm just going to randomly visit feeders. All the rules have changed. <coughs> but the interesting thing is, like, we don't know what angle they're coming in from, but they've certainly encoded that the green one should be closer to over here, even when it's in the middle. Um, so what does this mean? It means, <laughs> oh, this, this was a, my talk I gave at a conference a few years ago. The Siskins based mother. The fine Siskins responded based on space, sort of. They responded based on space that the most profitable feeder, that's the green one, uh, is not in the exact opposite place where it should have been. Once this happens, they seem to treat the brand as if it was brand new. So pay, they do pay attention to space quite a bit, just like we expected. And as, as this was a conference presentation, I would always end my, I always do, my presentations with thanking people. So the people that I thanked there were one of my couple of my students, there's Craig, who's now a special needs teacher in Newfoundland, but he was a drummer and also worked in my lab. Um, I used to have a lab, it's great. Um, can't see her right there, but he's a PhD. Uh, there's my kids back then, <coughs> sleeping in the car, and that was our house in Cornerbrook, the conferences in Florida. So I would always show pictures of, that's not perspective, by the way, screwing with you. That snow bank was high, was high enough up, up to be a second story window. People would always say, do you Photoshop those pictures? No, I live in Western Newfoundland. That's just the way it is there. All right. Now, is it going to keep doing that stupid thing? It's because of this. I'm just going to quit that app. Maybe that's what it was. All right. So, generally, any questions about that? I'm just showing you. See, again, it's the same sort of, it's convergent evolution, really, we're saying. A lot of having to really pay attention to food locations should make you really good and make you pay attention to location things way more than, say, space. Or, sorry, way more than color. All right. There's just a weird vibration in here. Okay, it's just that. Let me open this back up. It's freaking me out. Um, so when you talk about animal memory stuff, we talk about working memory, but we don't talk about working memory in the same way we talk about with people. It's a somewhat different definition. This is memory needed for one trial of it. And why is it keep saying test? Task. <laughs> this this slideshow is way out to get me. 
This is the memory needed to complete one trial of a task. And reference memory the rules of the game, how to complete any trial of a task. A task. It wouldn't be autocomplete task because task isn't a word. Anyway, so a given trial. So, for example, let's say that the, well, uh, okay, we'll think about the chickadees flying in the um, aviary. The working memory part is where was the peanut? Right? Today, where was the peanut? The reference memory part is I fly into a room, there are peanuts, I find where it is, I fly back in, it's that kind of thing. So it's the rules of, of, of the game. Okay? It's the rules of the game, so to speak. So we can talk about, it's sort of short-term and long-term, sort of. The nice thing is, just like, say, uh, working memory and, say, say, episodic and semantic memory, for example, we can associate these, we can associate these um, using surgical techniques, hippocampus, you remove hippocampus. This is intact reference memory. Working memory just disappears. Yeah. All right. Questions about that? Does it make sense? So there's a lot of ways one can study memory in animals. A classic approach is something called delayed matching to sample. Now, this is really pretty, a really pretty simple task. Well, this is the one damn thing you thank for colored chalk. Yeah, red and green, perfect. Present an animal with a green key. A key is just gonna, in the Skinner box, it's a, it's a circle, it's a disc. It's gonna be green. Light that up, and it'll pex out a bit. It goes out for a certain retention interval. Then the animal gets a choice between a green key and a red key. Okay? And if the animal picks the green key, this is the thing sample yet. It's food. Picks the red key, gets nothing. Obviously, half the time the sample's green, half the time the sample's red, half the time green's on the left, and half the time it's on the right. We're not idiots. Right? Design a proper experiment. Now, the thing is, you can also do this with non-matching sample, by the way. It's not a big deal. Um, you could make it so the red is the one that you reward after seeing green. Now, there can be qualitative, I talked about qualitative, quantitative differences before. There can be qualitative differences here, too, because the animal Well, let's think of it this way. Let's say it's the late matching sample. What's the working memory component of that? The working memory part is Did you answer the question? Well, in that case, it would have been, yeah, pet green, or pet red, if it was red, right? Because that was the back trial. The, 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 the reference memory component, there's actually two different ways you can solve this. There's two ways you can do this with reference memory. The rules can be done too. You can have two rules you could remember if red, peck, red, if green, peck, green. Or you could have a rule that was match to sample. That I'll always just match. Now, this is going to be a tough thing to find out how they're doing it. And it'd be cool if we had two other colored chucks, but we don't. 
Oh, well, such is life. You will have to imagine. Imagine different colors. So what we're going to do, how do we figure out if they're doing match to sample as their reference memory part, or how do we figure out if they're doing if red, peck red, if green, peck green? Well, all we do is we train them up like this, and we switch them around. So suddenly, it becomes blue and blue and yellow. Now, if they remember match to sample, this should be easy. Oh, look, these are blue and yellow, big deal. I just have to, I just have to match to sample. However, if the animals had been remembering if red, peck, red, if green, peck, green, when blue shows up, they should go, I don't know what to do. I'm a pigeon and I'm confused. <laughs> there should be a chance then, there should be 50%. And in fact, Macintosh, Wilkin, uh, Wilson, and Bokes found this in 82 is that pigeons were horrible. They switch it to red and uh, to blue and yellow, they're back at 50%, but they have to reteach it. So what they have learned, obviously, in their reference memory part, they've learned if, if red, peck red, if green, peck green. However, jackdaws, which are pretty smart birds, so to speak, they're mimics. There's a lot of neat things jackdaws do. Um, you switch it over to blue and yellow, and they're like, okay, yeah, whatever. Let's match the sample. I got you. No problem. In fact, you can also teach a jackdaw to say that, which would be kind of cool. <laughs> they had jackdaws at Oxford, and when I went, was there, and you go into the uh, aviary where the jackdaws were. And they'd make this sound. And it was the sound of somebody with their keys. Because the guy who would feed them on weekends would come in and he'd take out his keys to open up where the feed was. So it's like it's like you're making like, oh, yeah, I know the keys are the keys are here. Gonna feed me. So they'd make a key sound. Kind of great. So that's a, see that's a qualitative difference. Nick Macintosh died just a week ago. It's a shame too. He was a great guy. See, this kind of stuff, retro, uh, uh, matching the sample, is actually subject to retroactive and proactive interference, just like we talk about in, in human memory. So just like in human memory where we talk about you know, proactive interference, which is memory from old trials, interfering with memory from today. So for example, for example, let's say you've got, you ever, you ever forget where you put your keys? Yeah, we've all done that. And then you go looking for your keys and you say, oh, I know where they are. They're right beside the TV. And you go right beside the TV and you go, oh, now that was two days ago. <laughs> it's proactive interference. So yeah, it's proactive interference. Right? Retroactive interference is information from now interfering with remembering old stuff. The neat thing is, we can take a look with this kind of paradigm and find out the fact that it turns out that, 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 that this kind of memory is susceptible, this animal working memory is susceptible to proactive and retroactive interference. You take a look and see, are they more likely to make a mistake on a trial where the, the, the um, sample is, is different than it was in the trial before? You look at trial n, and you look at trial n minus 1, and you see what kind of errors they make. And then sometimes you ask them, this is a kind of complicated experiment, what color was the key two trials ago? And see if they have retroactive. And they do. And in fact, it looks very much like humans. And you know, at the beginning of this, I was talking all about how you shouldn't be saying, oh, they like humans. But in some of these things, they should be like humans. Because there are certain characteristics of memory that should be the same no matter what species are. Right? No matter what species you are.
Okay. You can even take a look and see, you can try something called symbolic matching. This is kind of weird. But that's like a triangle, and then if it's a triangle and you peck a sample and you peck blue, you get food. And then uh, square is yellow. Triangles, blue, squares, yellow. This isn't that what, but they're not actually matching, really. They're, it's, it's symbolic matching, it's called. Okay? See, one of the things that people wondered about was, or wonder about is, because we know, and this may sound weird, we know pigeons rehearse. They aren't actually seeing under their breath. Red, 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 red. But in essence, they are rehearsing. We know that because if we stop them from rehearsing, if we get them to do something in the middle, like the Brown-Peterson phenomenon, right? Same kind of idea. You can't ask a pigeon to count backwards by threes. Because <laughs> I don't think you get very far. But you get them to do something else, and it screws with them. In other words, they rehearse. They do mental rehearsal, just like we did. So the question you might ask yourself is, are they wondering, are they saying, pet green, pet green, pet green, pet green, is that what they're rehearsing? Or they, are they rehearsing, the sample was green, the sample was green, the sample was green. Both those work, by the way. Both of them work just fine. The question is, which one are they using? The neat thing is, using this kind of paradigm, this symbolic matching, you can actually figure out what pigeons are doing. Are they, this is weird, you can actually get inside a pigeon's head and understand how they're thinking, how they're rehearsing, what kind of strategy they're using. Are they encoding prospectively? In other words, peck green, peck green, peck red, peck red, or retrospectively, looking back, the sample was red, the sample was red, the sample was green, the sample was green. <coughs> And it's an exceedingly clever experiment. However, it's going to take me way more than six minutes to explain to you. So I'm going to ask if you have any questions. And as you don't, uh, we're going to stop here. Thanks, guys.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.